Uh, my name is Luke Jackson. I'm the missions and adult pastor here at Central, and it's so good to be with you. And, uh, you know, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be in 2018, we must remember and understand the kingship of Christ. Because it's when we see him as king that it increases our faith and expands our view of who Jesus really is, not only just in our lives, but also in our church. So this morning, we're going to look at the connection between the Old and the New Testament regarding Christ as king. And this is very important because it shows us that Jesus was fully God and the promised Messiah. So the first thing that I want to look at with you this morning, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. And the first thing that we want to look at this morning is that Jesus Christ is the eternal king of the past. We see that he is the eternal king who has prophesied in the Old Testament. There's many verses in the Old Testament that talk about the coming king and his kingship. But this morning we're going to look at one of these passages, these central passages, that talks about the coming king. And so as you turn there, I want to give you a little background on this passage. King David has just built himself a great palace, and he wants to now build a house for the Lord. But the Lord has other plans. In fact, the Lord wants David to continue to be a man of war, to continue to expand the borders and to bring peace and prosperity to the kingdom of Israel so that that would later provide the funds for his son, instead Solomon, to build the temple as we know from history. And what's amazing is that as God often does, you know, David wants to build God a house, but in turn David says in this passage that we're about to read, in fact, instead I'm going to build you a house. And we're going to look at what the Lord says through the prophet of Nathan to David this morning. So pick up with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 8 and read through verse 11 to get started this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the days that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Let's pray together. Dear God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house, God. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. Lord, I'm a sinner saved only by your grace, Lord, and that you would cleanse me so that I would be a clean vessel this morning to deliver your word to your people. I pray that every heart, Lord, all across this room today would be open to who you are as king, Lord. That, Lord, that you would move in a mighty way, that your spirit would fall, that this would not just be another Sunday, Lord, but this would be a day that life change happens in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray for that this morning as we look at your word, and we just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, if we look back at this passage, verse, starting with verse 8, God reminds David that he has gone from humble beginnings, from a shepherd boy, to being exalted before men as king. And so not only will he have power and dominion, but God also promises to make David's name great. And he goes on in verses 10 and 11 and talks about 
establishing an eternal home for his people where they will have eternal peace and rest. Now, we know he's talking about an eternal home because he says very clearly that they will not be disturbed again. Well, we know from history that after David was king, his son Solomon, which we're going to talk more about in a minute, became king. And then the kingdom was divided, right? And then there was exile after that. And so we know for a fact that on earth, the kingdom was not peaceful after that, right? And so he has to be talking about an eternal king to come. He has to be talking about peace and a home being established in eternity, As we read on in verses 12 and 13, look at what it says. It says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now in this passage, we're going to see it kind of going back and forth from the temporal and the eternal. The temporal being Solomon, David's son. Some of this is fulfilled in him. And then the eternal being the coming king, the Messiah that we're going to talk about. And so in this particular part of the passage, he combines the two. He talks about Solomon who will succeed David as king. And obviously we know Solomon did go on to build the temple of God. But then he talks about in verse uh, 13 about how his kingdom will be established forever. Well, this has to be a double meaning passage because there's no way that his kingdom can be established forever through an earthly man, King David, or an earthly man, King Solomon, only through the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So this is prophesying the coming king. Verse 14 and 15, he focuses back on Solomon. Look what he says. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So obviously we know that Jesus Christ never sinned. He was the perfect son of God. And so the only person that he could have been talking about committing iniquity was Solomon, the human that was a sinner. And so he focuses back on Solomon that Solomon will sin, but in God's love, he will be corrected and allowed to continue to reign. Aren't you glad that God uses imperfect people to establish his perfect plan? That means he can use you and that he can use me. Amen. In verse 16, we see uh, he focuses back on the eternal king. Look at what he says. He says, you shall, I'm sorry, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Once again, those words forever that are used could only be fulfilled in the coming king, Jesus Christ. And so the temporal part of this prophecy is fulfilled through King Solomon, the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy on earth. But then parts of the prophecy are focused solely on Jesus Christ. The eternal part is fulfilled through Jesus. And we're going to see that this morning as we go over to the New Testament. So go ahead and turn over with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the very first verse in the New Testament. So we see that not only is Jesus the eternal king of the past and that he was prophesied in the Old Testament, but we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy in the New Testament. While you're turning over to Matthew, I want to mention that the synoptic gospels were all written with different emphasis on who Jesus was. We see the book of Mark was written primarily to the Romans, and it was the gospel of the servant. It focused on the servanthood of Jesus. We see that the book of Luke was written primarily to the Greeks, and it's considered the gospel of the Son of Man. It focuses on the the fact that Jesus was 100% human. But then we see the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew was primarily written to the Jews. 
And as Jews, what would they be looking for? They would be looking for all of the prophecy in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus, the King, that he would have to be from the line of David. And so Matthew zeroes in on the kingship of Christ. The book of Matthew is the gospel of the eternal king. It proves that he was 100% God. He was the promised Messiah. He was the prophesied, uh, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the king to come in the Old Testament. And we know that Matthew starts with a genealogy. Now, obviously, some people, when they see genealogies in the Bible, just want to kind of read over it because they're like, what's well, a bunch of names? What's the point? But the genealogy was actually very important. In fact, it was very important to the Jews. It proved their tribal membership, their right to an inheritance. And so Matthew starts out by proving that Jesus, proving Jesus' geneal- genealogical record back to King David. Look at what it says, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see here at the very beginning in the New Testament, the first verse in the book of Matthew, it is made very clear that Jesus was the son of David. We see, in, just so there's no confusion on who, who David was, I mean, there could have been lots of Davids back then, right? But just so there's no confusion on who David was, what does it say in verse 6? It says, Jesse was the father of David the king. The only one in this genealogical record mentioned as the king. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, as the Christmas story begins and Joseph, uh, the angel appears to Joseph, look at what it says. It says, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Right? Now, we know that Joseph's immediate father was Jacob. Look at verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So why did he call him the father of David? Well, obviously, he was from the line of David. And so he wanted to make it clear, the author, Matthew, that not only was Jesus from the line of David, but even his father, Joseph, was from the line of David. We see this theme of kingship continue as we go on in Matthew. But as far as we know, all of the other Jewish royal genealogical records were destroyed when the Romans burned the temple in 70 AD. So this makes the ones in the Bible the only ones that remain. Now, what makes that interesting is, is this means that Jesus is the only person alive today that can prove that he is the rightful king to the throne of Israel. Let me say that again. So it'll sink in. It's pretty amazing to think about. That Jesus is the only person alive today that can prove legally or in writing that he is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. The only person alive. We see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, that we see this Christmas story continue and this theme of kings continue, right? The wise men. The the kings from the east come, and they come and they bow down to worship Jesus. But then there's a bad king who's out to destroy Jesus. Look at what it says. It says in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, uh, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. So we see here a tale of two kings. We see the wise men who are kings who come and they realize that man, there is a king of kings that we need to go and we need to worship. There is a king greater than us that we need to bow our knee to and worship. 
We see them go and worship him. But then we have over here another king, an evil king, King Herod, who wants to be king and doesn't want to bow the knee to any other king. He wants to be the king of his own life, and he's not willing to bow the knee to the king of kings. In fact, he wants to destroy and kill the king of kings. So as the king of, of all kings, he was, Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament because he was fully God and fully man. He was the only one who could be the Messiah and die for the sins of the world. So that's why it's so significant that he was the promised king, that he was proven to be from the line of David, the king of Israel. So I think we need to stop for a moment this morning. I think we need to ask our, our, all of ourselves the question, do the actions of our life mirror the good king's or the bad king. Not necessarily what you say, but the actions of your life. Are you more like the wise men who have come to bow their knee before the king of kings and realize that you are not the Lord of your own life? Are you more like King Herod where you say, you know what, I don't need a king. I want to be the boss of my own life. I want to be the Lord of my own life. Which one does your life, the actions of your life, mirror the most? So we see that Jesus is the prophesied king in the Old Testament. We see that he's fulfillment of the prof- this prophecy in the New Testament. We see that the word of God written thousands of years ago proves that Jesus is the eternal king. Do you believe that he is the eternal king of the past today? So we see that Jesus is the eternal king of the past, but we also see that Jesus is the eternal king of the present. Amen. We see mentioned multiple times in the New Testament that today that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. That's who he is today. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being martyred, he sees Jesus seated at the right hand of God. In Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1, and Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes that Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of God in heaven. So this morning, I want to ask you to flip over to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. We're going to be moving around a little bit more today. Uh, So Revelation, chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 2 through 7. And we're going to look at a glimpse of the throne room of heaven this morning, where Jesus currently is right now. And while you turn there, uh, I'm sorry, while you turn to Revelation, chapter 4, I want to also mention that there are three other men in the Old Testament, besides John in the book of Revelation, there were three other men that saw the throne room, that had a vision of the throne room and that wrote about it. We know that in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Daniel chapter 7, this is also mentioned. And a vision is described of the throne room. And let's look at what it says. Revelation 4, starting with verse 2, this is John speaking. It says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes, 
in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. We see this incredible imagery of the throne room of God in this passage. And as we think about this, we see that the word like is used nine times. Which tells me that when John was trying to write this and he was trying to describe the vision that he saw, there was nothing on earth that could really explain what he saw. And so the only thing that he could do is say, well, it's kind of like this on earth, but not really. Because it was such an amazing thing that he saw that could not be described by any words in this earth, on this earth. We see the four living creatures go on to worship God the Father as this passage continues. You know, the famous holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty passage. It continues. And then in chapter 5, Jesus Christ the Lamb becomes the focal point of the throne, of the throne room. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Once again, bringing back the fact that he is from the line of David, that he is the King of Kings. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, let's look at that. We see Christ being exalted in the throne room as the king of kings. Verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down. And worshiped. We see that not only is Jesus the king of the past, the eternal king, he is also the king, the eternal king of the present. We see that today he is seated at the right hand of God, but we also see that he is currently being worshiped as king. Do you know him today as your king? Is he presently the king of our church? Because when he is, it truly changes everything. So we see that Jesus is the eternal king of the past. We see that Jesus is the eternal king of the present. And we also see that Jesus is the eternal king of the future. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, last one, last passage this morning that I want to show you. We see in Revelation that as you turn there, you know, the book of Revelation is a book that sometimes is kind of scary because there's a lot of, a uh, lot in there that we don't really know for sure if it's symbolic, if some of it's literal, if it's kind of a mix. And we don't know everything exactly that's going to happen because God didn't want us to. If he would have wanted us to know everything before it happens, then he would have, he would, he would have been a little clearer in what he, what he said in Revelation, or at least let us understand what he was saying a little more. And so some people maybe get a little bit afraid of Revelation, but I think one thing that we can all agree on is that the book of Revelation can be summed up in a phrase, in a sentence. And the reason it's important, the reason it's in the Word of God, I believe, is very clearly because Jesus is coming back 
So we better be ready. Jesus is coming back, so you better be ready. The king will return. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And look at what it says in verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We see here the the king returns and he will return to destroy the enemy and claim the throne once and for all. He is no longer the suffering servant riding peaceably on a donkey, but now he is the king of kings riding in on a white horse to defeat the enemy once and for all. In verse 12, we see that he has many diadems or many crowns, signifying that he is not just a king, but he is the king of all kings. And then in verse 16, we see that he is actually called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, when we think about this this morning, because of who Jesus is as the perfect son of God, because of who Jesus is as the king of kings, and because of who we are as sinners, we really shouldn't have any opportunity to have anything to do with the eternal king. We really shouldn't even have an opportunity to follow him in his army, but he gives us that opportunity. Aren't you glad that in his love and in his grace... In his reckless love, as we sang about earlier, and in his grace, he has given us the opportunity to serve him, to follow him, to to be a part of his army. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse uh, 19 of this same chapter. It says, And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on his horse and against his army. So we see this great end times battle develop. We see on one side the forces of evil are moving out to meet the king of kings for one final battle, for one epic battle of Armageddon. You can feel the hype being created. You, You can feel the tension rising to the point of conflict. And then look at what happens in verse 20. It says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. In the most anticlimactic moment in history, we see this huge battle. Everything's being hyped up for this final moment of conflict. And what happens? Jesus defeats the enemy and there isn't even a battle. That he is so powerful. He is so mighty. He is so much the king of kings and the Lord of lords that there isn't even a battle. It says immediately Satan is defeated. That's how much it is even close, how much more power our God has, our king has than the enemy. 
What's amazing about being in the king's army is that we already know the outcome. The king is eternally victorious. And we who follow him are also eternally victorious in the end. So the question becomes this morning, will you individually choose him as the king of your future? Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I've never bowed the knee to King Jesus. I've never made him the king of my life, the Lord of my life, and asked him to come and sit on the throne of my heart. And today you can make that commitment. You can choose him to be the king of your future. Will our church corporately choose him as the king of our future in 2018? With him on the throne in our lives as individuals and him on the throne in our church, the king can do anything. When we see Jesus as king, we have faith that he can mend any relationship. We have faith that he can take away any baggage. We have faith that he can forgive any sin, that he can reach any sinner, that he can restore any church, that he can turn around any country back to him, and he can use you and me to do something for his kingdom that we have never seen before. When we see Jesus as king, it's a game changer. It changes our whole perspective on life and how we live our lives and how our church moves forward corporately as well. So this morning, as we think about his kingship, I pray that we as individuals and as a church will have a growing faith in the power, in the love, in the authority, in the resources, in the ability, in the victory, in the majesty, and in the mercy of our king today. You know, we have a unique opportunity this morning to respond to the king by going to his table and partaking in the Lord's Supper. So as we pray in just a minute and have a song of preparation, I want to ask you to use this time of preparation to prepare your hearts for communion. I want to ask the ushers to wait to pass out any of the elements until I instruct you a little bit later on. But this is going to be a time for us to really just spend some time preparing our hearts before we take communion together and encourage you to reflect on the kingship of Christ in your life. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that you are the king, Lord, and that we have an opportunity to serve you. We have an opportunity to be a part of your army, Lord, to follow you. God, and I pray that this morning that everyone in this room, every heart in this room, Lord, would not leave this place before they make you their king. God, maybe you're our king, but we haven't been living like you're our king, Lord. And I pray that there are those of us in this room this morning that need to return to the king. Lord, that we would do so this morning. Lord, that whatever it is that you call us to do, Lord, that we would be obedient to your call today and that you would help us prepare our hearts for what we're about to do and going to your table and spending the time with you during communion. We just ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.